God's word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword, they are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good And all the prosperity I provide for it, thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste, without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of Negev, of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. I read this far in God's uh, holy word. A 30 years war was one of the longest and most destructive conflicts of European history lasting from 1618 to 1648. During that war, a German pastor named Paul Gerhardt and his family were forced to flee from their own home. One night, as they stayed in a small village inn, on the run and afraid, Mrs. Gerhardt, his wife, broke down and cried openly in despair to her husband. In an effort to comfort her, Pastor Gerhardt reminded her of Scripture promises about God's provision and God's keeping. And then going outside into the garden to be alone, Pastor Gerhardt too broke down and wept. He felt that he had come to his darkest hour. Uh, Soon after that, Pastor Gerhardt felt the burden lifted and sensed anew God's presence. Taking his pen, he wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many in these last couple hundred years. It begins like this. Give to the winds thy fears, hope, and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. That hymn was sung almost 400 years later in the United States, soon after COVID hit. Each choir member was alone and quarantined, as we all remember, I hesitate to remind us, and yet 
we're talking about joy in the midst of difficulty, and this is a wonderful illustration. The choir members alone and quarantined came together electronically to recover their voices and to provide that video to their fellow church members to recover their voices of joy in the middle of a difficult and scary time. At noon today, if it works right, I've prearranged for an email to get to each of you who are in our email system of a link to this video, which is less than two minutes long. You look for the one that has, it looks like a Zoom screen with 21 tiny pictures of choir members singing, and it's this hymn, Pastor Gerhardt. From the setting of the original writing to the setting of it being used here in our country recently, it illustrates the main point of our study today. God restores the blessing of joy to his people in the darkest of despair. First, we're called to call out to God, verses 1 through 6. Secondly, that God will bring back the voice of joy to a place of waste, verses 7 through 9. Our third point will be God will turn a desolate place to a place of peace and security. So first, we're calling out to God. As our chapter begins, Jeremiah is still in prison, and he's in prison for preaching the truth. The city is surrounded by the enemy, so this is quite a scene. The word of God comes a second time to Jeremiah here in verse 1. What should Jeremiah do in a dark moment, a difficult spot for him personally, a difficult spot for him as a prophet of God, a difficult spot for his whole city under siege, literally? What should he do? You're in church, you're being asked what a person should do. Of course, a good answer is to pray, and that's exactly correct. To pray, to call out to God. In verse 2, that's exactly how God instructs him. Call to me. But it's more than that. God also assures him, promises him, that God will respond by answering him. And I will answer you. It's one of those places in Scripture that reminds us of this three-word sentence that's so true. God answers prayer. God cares for us, and it's seen in how he answers prayer. And then the rest of verse 2 into verse 3, says, God says, I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known, verse 2. Uh, the point is not learning to expect personal miracles, such as is God really saying, if you read between the lines, that Jeremiah should expect a personal miracle so he gets out of prison? That's not the point at all. Rather, this is learning to focus on great redemption acts of God, promised by God, such as God's people getting out of exile. It's about reminding ourselves of the great patterns of God that he has promised for the new covenant people. He says in verse 2, I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. These ways that God will fulfill his promise about his new covenant are not yet known. Did God do a personal miracle for Jeremiah? No, he did not. Jeremiah had spent his 17 shekels on a rip-off field, but God had reminded Jeremiah that God would bring his people back, and then the ownership of that one field would, rather than being a rip-off, would be a symbol of hope in God through the time of the exile and afterwards. Verses 4 and 5, we see how Jerusalem's houses would be torn down for the war effort. They needed the supplies in order to work against the enemy on the outside of the walls. And the places where there used to be houses then would be filled with dead bodies because even the people inside the city of Jerusalem were already dying because they had been cut off by the enemy outside. Why are we being told this? Why is this happening in verses 4 and 5? Because God would withdraw his sustaining promise. And this is what happens. 
without God's face, if you look at the language of verse 5, turning towards them and extending favor to them, the city, left to its natural outworking of its own evil, would have this devastating scene. Houses being torn down, the place where the houses were being filled with dead bodies. But then we get a reversal in verse 6. Similar to the reversal we studied in the previous chapter, 32, but here now in verse 6 is a complete change from verse 5. Watch for it. God said, Behold, I will bring to the city health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. Didn't we just talk about having houses torn down and filled with dead bodies in this spot? And God is talking about health and healing an abundance of prosperity and security. There's a huge shift in verse 6. This verse must not be ripped out of the chapter as if to say that down to today, God's people are always promised health and throw in wealth. Rather, this promise in its context in Jeremiah chapter 33 shows Jerusalem's restoration as a picture of spiritual healing in the new covenant. It points ahead to farther future events that will happen in and around Jerusalem where Jesus would take on the wounds of God's people and bring spiritual healing where it was previously impossible. The things that they have not known, you see. That Jesus gave life to the spiritually dead. Remember the famous words of Isaiah 53.5, also quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 2.24, with his wounds... We are healed. And these are real wounds for Christ unto death, providing spiritual healing for us. In fact, spiritual resurrection for us. So don't let those caught up in the air of health and wealth gospel take these verses and misapply them to you. This is the great thing that God asked Jeremiah to focus on and to pray for that he's to call out to God, God will answer with great things that Jeremiah did not yet know. How God will work out the salvation of his people, how Jesus will be coming into this world and going to the cross. This is a great thing that God asked Jeremiah to call upon God to give. And later, the gospel is revealed like a mystery unfolding. Brings us to our second point. Not only are we to call out to God and he answers with great things, but secondly, God will bring back the voice of joy to what we could call a place of waste. In verse 7, we have this phrase again. It keeps cropping up. You'll see it as a mini theme. Restore the fortunes. Did you catch it a couple times as in a few chapters now? Restore the fortunes. The promise is that God will rebuild them as they were at first, verse 7. But how could that happen? How could God take guilty sinners in desolation and isolation, and then rebuild them. We learn in verse 8, it's by means of spiritual cleansing. Verse 8 reads, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin. So in addition to cleansing from sin, God will reverse the shame caused by the sin. Jerusalem, you see, had developed a reputation of shame as the nations watched. The city of God behaved so badly that their own God brought destruction on them and every nation was paying attention. But God would reverse that shame and cause his city to be known worldwide for righteousness. 
That's the message as we read it now in verse 9. This city shall be to me a name of joy, like a renown, a renown of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them, and so on. So sin and shame, which leads to destruction and death, will be reversed to honor that leads to life and joy. This is quite a reversal in this passage. Similarly, the Apostle Paul wrote to a city full of shameful sinners called Corinth who were becoming God's holy people. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul wrote to the previously thieving, greedy, swindling, sexually immoral, idolatrous, reviling drunkards in Corinth, and he wrote this, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6.11. So we take Jerusalem, we take Corinth, and we ask, Why does God allow sin and shame to come into God's city or into God's church in the first place? The pastors who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith help us to observe the providence of God. As we read earlier, I'll read a bit of it now again. Chapter 5, section 5 on providence, this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold or many temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their own hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. How helpful is that from a group of Westminster pastors writing down for us how God could allow into his city in Jerusalem, to his church in Corinth, such extreme wickedness. Because the God of providence has this pattern we're picking up on, the pattern of allowing his people to reach a place of waste and then to bring them back to their voice of joy. Again, Paul wrote to his young student Titus about our collective redemption after we've wandered away. Titus 3, 5, that Christ saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So God will bring our voice of joy to our place of waste. And third, our third point then, from verses 10 through 13, that God will turn a desolate place of, into a place of peace and security. The reversal here in Jerusalem is remarkable. It's as if Jeremiah doesn't want us to miss it, so he pauses and shows us once more the scene. It's, it's like he's painting in words the scene in your mind. The good news of this reversal from God, of the aspects of the new covenant coming into fruition for us, cannot be fully appreciated until the contrasting situation is first mapped out. Verse 10. The word without appears in the Hebrew five times. Don't look for it in English. It's translated a bit differently. But in five different statements, as I'll try to explain in a moment, the word without appears in Hebrew repeatedly. It stands out. So that the cities and the streets of the city were without man, without animal, without man, without inhabitant, without beast. Cumulatively, you see how that goes in verse 10 in your English. So altogether, the city is without life. And without joy. 
It's devastation. In fact, three times prior to our chapter, three times Jeremiah had characterized the destruction of Jerusalem as without the sounds of a wedding. Chapter 7, chapter 16, and chapter 25, if you're looking it up. Without wedding sounds was ominously symbolic of a judgment so crushing that conventional social relations, simple things as a wedding, became impossible. And it symbolizes how the entire infrastructure of communities had failed. Why are there no wedding sounds? Because no one wants to celebrate. No one wants to marry. No one wants to start a family. Because the enemies are around the city. And it's any moment now. We're all doomed. Things had become that bad. Then we get the reversal. Into this empty, abandoned, bereft, hopeless place that had been reduced to unspoken anguish. Now, sounds of joy will again be heard. Verse 11, resuming wedding singing was tied to resuming worship singing. That's because they would be right with God again. They're returning from the exile as repentant sinners right with God now. It's because they were coming to God afresh with thank offerings in verse 11 bringing them into the house of the Lord, indicating a rebuilding of the house of the Lord. It's fulfilled in history. Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, when the people returned from exile and sang the song of thanks to the Lord, it's as if they're quoting our verse, verse 11, over there in Ezra 3, 11. In their singing, they exalted what? If you look at that uh, little song that's printed for you in verse 11, they're giving thanks for three things. The character of God and his power, the character of God in his goodness, and the character of God in his love. His power is seen as the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of all the armies of heaven. It's seen in his goodness, for he is good. The Lord is good, it says. And then the third line, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a love that won't quit until he demonstrates his beautiful gifts to us in the new covenant. Now think about the exiles. The people who are reading this book while they're trapped and imprisoned in the foreign place of Babylon. Not yet released. They're reading through Jeremiah 33. The songs of joy were to be voiced at a time while they're still in exile, you see. At the very time where it seemed like the Lord was neither good nor powerful nor faithful, they were to sing about his goodness, his power, and his faithfulness. It's kind of like the bigger picture of what we saw in Jeremiah about the field. Okay, I'll buy the field, but I don't know that I buy that we're going to be able to use it. Bigger picture, all the exiles are supposed to buy or understand or adopt the idea that they're coming home, that the exile will come to a conclusion, that they can now in prison in Babylon sing of God's power, his goodness, and his faithfulness. You see it? In a desolate place, God can restore the voice of joy in us when we look not at our predicament itself, but rather look at the character of God and absorb the promises of God for his people in the new covenant. In verse 12, there's a fresh metaphor reversing the place of waste into a scene. A tranquil image of shepherds caring for flocks on green pastures on rolling hills. 
In verse 13, every part of the land will be restored and healed in a similar way. The flocks will pass under the hands of the shepherd who counts them. It's, as, it's a picture as if times are so dark that the shepherd counts them by touching them in the dark as they pass by to count his sheep to make sure he's lost none of them. David, King David, who was a shepherd himself, you remember, famously wrote in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And later Jesus himself would say in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So all the care of God spoken of here in Jeremiah 33, all the reversals spoken of here with the pictures here in Jeremiah 33, and the fulfillment of the new covenant promises given to us chapter 31, are fulfilled for us in Christ, our good shepherd, laying down his life for his sheep on his crucifixion and his resurrection. Later, the Apostle Paul wrote about God's care for his people at another time of his people being scattered into various places. 1 Peter 1.1, listen, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Why would Peter use the word exiles? Because he's picking up on this whole beautiful image that even in exile, even in a desolate place, we can call on God and rejoice in God, start the songs of thanksgiving before our circumstances change. So Peter writes, <clears throat> excuse me, the letter of 1 Peter to go out to those who are elect exiles, dispersed in various places, which he then lists in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Cappadocia, Asia, and Pontus, and so on. He lists out the places where the letter is going. And he's saying, in every single place of your exile and dispersion and scattering, from there, start with your song. From there, start singing the songs of thanksgiving to our God. And he talks about shepherding then in chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter reminded the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Because the elders were scattered with the people, and wherever they were, they were to shepherd the people. And he says in verse 4, 1 Peter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. So the imagery is there in Jeremiah. The imagery is there in Jesus' words in John 10. The imagery is there in Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 5, that the point of the third point is given, that God will turn a desolate place into a place of peace and security. And if it's true for the ancient believers in Jeremiah's day, and it's true for the believers in Jesus' day, and it's true for the believers in the first century in Peter's day, it's true for God's people down to our day. What have we seen? That God restores the blessing of joy to his people in the darkest of despair, that we are to call out to God. He answers with great things. Secondly, that God will bring back the voice of joy to our place of waste. And third, that God will turn a desolate place into a place of peace and security. I have two concluding application points along these lines. Number one, seek God's spiritual restoration and you'll find joy. Seek God's spiritual restoration and you'll find joy. Rejoicing is one of the great purposes of God for our lives. God does not seek to stamp out all of our fun, all of our pleasure, all of our joy. God wants us to increase in rejoicing, even while we are passing through hardships. God wants our joy not only to continue, but to increase. 
Seek God's spiritual restoration, you'll find joy. People around us are seeking joy in all the wrong places and ways. Why do people gamble? Because if they hit it big, they can spend that money on their pleasures, they seek joy. Why do people buy lottery tickets? Why do people rob and steal and cheat and embezzle? Because they think if they have enough money, they can get enough pleasures, enough activities, enough mindless entertainments that they'll have joy at the end. Here's a promise for joy that you should not believe. Watch the big game, hang around with the rich and beautiful, drink this, eat that, smoke this, and you will have joy. Those are all lies. They don't deliver. And our culture is going hard after them. That's not how joy is to be found. Seek God's spiritual restoration and you'll find joy. This city of Jerusalem ended up like a ghost town. And it's a picture of God's people. You ever feel like your life is like that? Burned out? Blow out? Barely feel like a person certainly doesn't feel like a marriage or a family, doesn't feel like home or a safe environment at work or school, doesn't feel like much of a joyful Christian life. It feels like five withouts. Fill in the blank. Without, 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 without. You fill in the blank because you've already been saying it to yourself. You ever feel like that? Like the ghost town picture? It's the feeling of joylessness caused by life in a broken world, experienced by sinners who sin and sinners who are sinned against. And joy actually comes only when we approach God in repentance and faith and seek his spiritual restoration. This is a call to come to Christ. He said, come to me, verse 3. Who else says that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to Christ, repenting of the sins that we have done first. Believing that he forgives and cleanses. And when we do, all those sins are gone. We have spiritual health, spiritual life, spiritual healing. And Christ gives us more than forgiveness. He rebuilds his people, as we saw in our passage. He fills our lives with joy again. That's where this is all heading. John 10.10, I came, this good shepherd says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is a life with joy and rejoicing. Our good shepherd took our old lives of sin and emptiness and despair and exchanged them for new lives of right living, abundance, and rising hope. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he has a new creation, or he's part of a whole new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. So remember that spiritual cleansing leads to joy. Godly joy is found in God. Seek God's spiritual restoration, you'll find joy. Secondly, last one, in dark times... Joy is found in God's nearness. In dark times, joy is found in God's nearness. Again, God calls us to, asks us to call on him. Verse 2, call to me. I'll answer you. Who is this that's saying this? It's not just anyone. It's not one of his angels delegated to say this. This is the very same God who has the power to found the earth in the first place. He reminds us of that if you read through verse 2 again. He formed it and established it. The God has power to bring 
order out of chaos, to bring life out of death, is the one who's calling you to call on him. The God who you might be tempted to think has forsaken you. It's such a mess. Reminds you in this passage of his close attentiveness to you. He literally says, I will answer you. The God who might have felt like he was absent presents himself as ever so nearby, completely findable, and eagerly approachable. And just like ancient Jerusalem after the exile had streets that were in silent anguish but would once again hum with sounds of joy, we could also say of our lives, we could say of our churches that God will restore us to such a degree that our dining rooms at home and our fellowship halls and worship halls at church and every corridor of our lives in between will hum with sounds of joyful singing again. The good news of restoration starts with restoring the abundance of worship. How it starts, if you look again at verse 11, they're giving thanks to the Lord of hosts. It starts that way. Sad mourning is reversed to glad singing in the house of the Lord. The gospel is the gift of joy and rejoicing for people who are alive in Christ Jesus. Paul could write from prison to the church in Philippi, from prison, remember, rejoice always, I will say it again, rejoice, says the professor who is himself in prison rejoicing, Philippians 4.4. And again, Peter would write to the elect exiles that they are to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, 1 Peter 1.8. God knows our sufferings are horrible. He's not diminishing the pain, the feelings, the suffering at all. There's not some brushing of it away. What Christ asks us to keep in mind is that the one who spoke new promises to sufferers, such as the Apostle John, wrote this in Revelation 21.4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4 Jesus, aware of how difficult things can be in this world, wants us to remember that when Jesus comes and takes us out of this exile that we're in right now in our world, to our heavenly home and field and banquet, and reserved seat with a name placard with your name on it, that all will be left for us to do then is the rejoicing. And since that's our future voice, he says, what are you waiting for? Recover your voice of rejoicing now, while in exile. And we can be so sure of that future that we recover that voice and we say, In a dark time, joy is found in God's nearness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give.